Welcome to Books Boys. Every month, the Dean and PJ tell you all about the books they've been reading and make some recommendations from our old favorites, plus surprise call-ins from authors to talk about the works that they're writing, original music, prize giveaways, and more. That's Books Boys on BooksBoys.com and all good podcatchers. Books Boys. Get it. Buy it. All right, Tom, uh, thanks for uh, joining. Uh, You had reached out and uh, shared with me your uh, book. Um, when did you actually write that uh, that book? Yeah, the the book Trump's second term. Uh, I began writing it uh, a little over a year ago in February and uh, of 2020, and completed it in probably May of uh, 2020. So it was uh, it was all before the election, and when I started writing it, it was. There was, there was still a good possibility that Trump could be reelected. And even as you went into the fall and Biden was up by eight points, it still wasn't clear that it was a slam dunk for him because Hillary was up by 17 points by, uh, at the same period uh, in 2016. Oh, yeah, we, we all thought that uh, Hillary was going to win. And, you know, um, even I've shared on some past episodes um, you know, social media was a different place, um, you know, back when Trump was running against Hillary, and a lot of people were, um, you know, biting their tongue back then, and all of these deplorables were doing what they were doing, and uh, yeah, it was a, a different place, and then, of course, everybody was shocked that he won, and and the uh, the term, you know, went out just exactly how we thought it would. What um, actually led you to uh, write the book there? Well, part of it was uh, I had just read uh, or I had just seen Philip Roth, The Plot Against America, which speculated what would have happened if Lindbergh had won the election in 1940 as opposed to Roosevelt. How would America have been different? And I thought, you know, what happens if Trump is reelected? You know, what would America look like in terms of the pandemic, in terms of the economy, in terms of social justice? And what I, what, I came, what I came to the conclusion is I started to extrapolate and expand. If Trump does what he's doing now and continues in a, in a second term, what would that look like? And in Trump's America, nobody can sit on the sidelines. Everybody's got to take a stand. And there would be a lot of people that would support him and a lot of people who would be uh, against him and try and get rid of him. And one of the major learnings of the book was that once you're elected, it's very difficult or it, and almost impossible to get rid of a president once uh, he or she has been elected. Yeah, we, we found that out the hard way, <laughs> for sure. Um, and, and the book, um, just so that we're, we're clear, some of um, may have been uh, distracted before they, they got into the episode here. Trump's second term, what if President Donald J. Trump had won re-election in 2020 
it's available um, probably most anywhere, it's uh, ebook, paperback, and so forth. And um, Tom, I'll let you pronounce your last name. I don't want to murder it. It's Fishgrund. <laughs> so, I, 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 th I think that's how it's pronounced. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. Um, and then we were talking earlier, Tom, so you're um, in Metro Atlanta now, um, but were you native Metro Atlanta? No, I, I actually grew up in New York, uh, did my schooling in Boston. There, uh, there wasn't a uh, college or university I didn't go to in Boston, and uh, then came down to Atlanta actually to work for Coca-Cola. And uh, I worked 15 years for Coke, and the past 20 years I've been doing been doing an executive search business. I'm a headhunter, a recruiter. But uh, I've written seven books, and I enjoy writing. And this is my first work of fiction, and was just kind of fascinated by this whole question of what if Trump had been reelected? You know, what would America look like? Yeah, it's almost similar as you describe it, and as I read through it. Have you heard of the Man in the High Castle? Yeah, it, it's, it's it's the same kind of book. There are other books like What If the South Had Won the Civil War? And what's interesting when you're writing this kind of book, and especially when you're writing about Trump, you know, I tried to think about what would be really outlandish, what would be, you know, really crazy, what are the, the crazy things that he could do? And as it turned out, the one mistake that I made was I didn't even think crazy enough. Because if... I had told you in December that the President of the United States would encourage an insurrectionist mob to take over the Capitol to try and prevent the certification of the next election, you'd say, well, that's crazy. That would never happen. The uh, police, the police, the Capitol Police, the National Guard, the military, the FBI, Secret Service, they'd never let that happen. But the bottom line is it did happen. And as I looked at kind of thinking through, what would the difference be? The first major difference is I don't think that Trump would have done nearly as good a job with the pandemic. Uh, he did a terrible job while he was in office. But you got to remember that towards the in December, Trump said, we're going to vaccinate 20 million people. And it turned out that the U.S. actually vaccinated 3 million people. Trump left it up to the states uh, and the local government to handle. When Biden takes over in the first 100 days, he vaccinates 220 million people. So first of all, assume that the pandemic is not going to uh, be handled well by Trump in a second term. And that also has implications in terms of the economy, because then the economy is not going to do well. And so if the economy doesn't do well, then how does that affect ordinary people? And then you've got to think about, but what about the social justice? Trump did not care about social justice. That was not a big thing with Trump, and that was never. So I, I think what I predicted would have happened in his second term, would there be a lot of protest out in throughout the country? But instead of being uh, social about social justice, They'd be about there's an authoritarian dictatorship that is taking over this country and people are going to take to the streets and try and get rid of Trump. And at the same time, Trump, if you thought that Trump was terrible in the first term, you can only imagine that he would have taken his election in the second term as a mandate and then 
would have, first of all, in order to put down the protests, would have called out the National Guard, and the National Guard would have uh, put down the protest because he would have declared a state of emergency. And if you remember back in the summer of 2020, when Trump went across Lafayette Square to hold up a Bible in front of a church, and the National Guard and the military uh, put down the protesters, uh, put down the protesters, these were peaceful protesters, but they started firing rubber bullets at them, and they started moving them away. Just imagine that multiplied and magnified many times during Trump's second term. Oh, for sure. It, it was scary as hell. Um, you know, some of the, the actions and, and, uh, and using the military against, you know, citizens within the country. Um, it, it, it was scary as hell. And what I predict would have happened would be that Trump would have uh, suspended habeas corpus, the right to a speedy and fair trial. He would have arrested or put under house arrest uh, governors and senators for their own protection. And he would have uh, he would have focused in on solidifying his rule during the second term. And there's even a question about, well, if he won a second term, would he stop? Would he therefore potentially go on for a third term in 2024? And you're saying, well, what about the 22nd Amendment, which prevents a president from running again? And what I predicted is that, first of all, Trump would have another two picks at the Supreme Court. In fact, he had one of them uh, at the end of 2020 when Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies. What I predicted uh, at that point was that when Ruth Bader Ginsburg left office, that Trump would replace her with a female who I said would be anti-abortion, would be a right-wing conservative who would make uh, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh sound like liberals. And that's exactly what happened. And so Trump would therefore have not only the Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but it's questionable whether Stephen Breyer will serve out another four years. And so you would have a court that's seven to two in a conservative event, and it would be hard to stop Trump from a legal perspective to do anything with the Supreme Court uh, that's configured in that way. <laughs> yeah, the, the other thing that comes to mind, have you seen the documentary on HBO, uh, Q, End of the Storm? No. I was, you've, uh, you've heard of QAnon, right? Oh, oh, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so there's a documentary. Um, I think I need to catch up on a few more episodes because they were dropping them, uh, I think, once a week. But uh, HBO did a documentary, and they went back to the roots, allegedly, because QAnon allegedly is, uh, uh, you know, uh, anonymous and so forth. And they go back to the roots and how it started out on these message boards and so forth. And uh, there are a lot of parallels. I'm, I'm almost drawing some parallels that you may be actually the, uh, the liberal QAnon here. I don't know. <laughs> what, what, what's amazing is that I took like one day in, in, uh, while trying, in 2020, and, and Trump did three things, any one of which would have been an outrage with any other president or major political leader. Because, and the reason I'm bringing it up is because in one of them, Trump praises QAnon supporters. 
and says that they appreciate that he appreciates them and that they like me very much so first of all uh, a radical group which believes in uh, uh, the Democrats committing pedophilia and doing all these terrible things he supports them the other thing that he said on that same day was that it was reported that he wanted to swap Puerto Rico for Greenland and I'm thinking God that's where did that come from and then finally uh, he was asked by a reporter whether he would accept the election results after the election, and he kind of demurred and hesitated and never said that he would accept the results. And in fact, he didn't. And in my book, he never accepts any election results. And without giving away my ending, there, uh, there is an election result which doesn't go his way in 2024, and he doesn't accept it. And then what happens? And, and how does that eventually resolve itself? And so there are so many issues. And I, the amazing thing is that as I look at this, about what happens to America, you've got to take it down to the personal level. Because if you look at the man in the high castle and the plot against America, it's about a family. And there's a family in Atlanta where the father is very much in favor of Trump because he works for a fintech uh, company. He's got a good job. He's making $200,000. He lives in Buckhead. And he believes that Trump is doing a good job. And when people say, well, you don't agree with his style, he says, well, his, his bark is worse than his bite. And his wife is against Trump. His kids are against Trump. But this guy, uh, John Gillespie, likes Trump. And it's only when certain things start to happen that he begins to evolve. Uh, first of all, as Trump starts to round up illegal immigrants, uh, it doesn't bother most people because it doesn't affect them. And, and Stalin used to say, if 11 million people die, it's a uh, statistic. If one person dies, it's a tragedy. And it's not until John Gillespie's cleaning lady, who's an illegal immigrant, gets picked up in one of these sweeps. So that then he begins to say, well, you know, maybe Trump's not such a good guy. And so the second thing that happens to him, which I think would be a very real possibility, is that he loses his job. And then all of a sudden, the good life that Trump has promised is no longer uh, available to him. So then he starts to become, well, now I'm not believing that Trump is as good a guy as I think he is, and starts to go against Trump. But it's the final straw that really forces him to become anti-Trump. And that is that he's at a protest rally with his wife and his two children, who are college students, and the, the National Guard is very aggressive, starts arresting people and holding them without, uh, without trials or anything. And John and his wife are running down a street to avoid the National Guard, and all of a sudden they realize that their kids aren't there, and then they find out their kids have been arrested. And it's at that point, when his kids are arrested, that John Gillespie says, no, Trump's not a good guy, I am totally against him, and how do I prevent him from continuing in office? And the book, go, and the book covers uh, legislative remedies, legal remedies, the 25th Amendment, where you declare the president uh, incapable of holding office anymore, uh, assassinations, etc., and becomes, and you even have foreign powers 
that become involved. So it's, it's, it's very, very difficult to get uh, a president out of office, but it also affects us. And a lot of the characters in the book have moral dilemmas about whether they should follow their job or follow their conscience. And that's what a lot of the book is about, you know, kind of what do you do when you have an autocrat in office and do, do you take the law into your own hands? Do you start to make certain decisions? Those are some of the judgments and some of the, the decisions that people must make. One thing that shocked me, because leading up to the election, everybody was on pins and needles. Our blood pressure was all rise. Uh, you know, uh, it's just drama everywhere, and everybody was worried about the results. When we finally got the results, who decided to wake up and vote for Trump that did not vote for him the first time around? And I don't know if your book goes into that or if there's an angle of the story anywhere in there, but more people voted for Trump the second time around than they did the first time around. I've been well, struggling trying to answer that. You know, I really kind of thought through, was there a real possibility that Trump could have been elected, and were there enough people? And you got to remember that 74, 75 million people voted for him the second time, and you kind of thought, at what point, what's the red line that Trump can cross so that people won't support him? And you can, you can denigrate a war hero. You can call white supremacists, uh, they're, they're good people on both sides. You can get them cozying up to Russia. And none of those were, were red lines. And what I kind of found frightening as I did research for the book and then kind of as I've been thinking about it afterwards, was that Trump only lost the election. He lost the election by like seven or eight million votes. But because of the electoral college system, if only three states, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Arizona, had flipped 105,000 votes out of over 155 million cast, 105,000 votes had gone the other way, then Trump would have been uh, would have been reelected, and what was kind of almost more frightening is that it was within Trump's control to do that. And he had a pollster, a guy named Stepien, who said, who said to him, said, "You only got to do a few things. First thing you got to do is recognize that the pandemic is is something that's really serious, and you're going to take control, which Trump never did. The second thing he said is." You have to, uh, as president, act presidential. And so when he went off on Biden in the first debate, that caused him a lot of votes. And the third thing, which was most incredible, was he said the election was rigged, there was fraud, and he didn't want his supporters to go out and vote via the mail. And those three things probably, and I would say almost certainly, cost him the election. And but, you know, one could argue that you got to dance with a girl you brought to the dance and uh, Trump couldn't change. And because Trump couldn't change, that's what cost the election. But I still can't believe that there are 75 million people that supported him, given all the things that he did. And if you look at now, there's a fight within the Republican Party 
where they are fighting out whether Trump is going to control the party. And from everything that I'm reading, and uh, it's instructive that Liz Cheney, who is opposed to Trump, is going to lose her leadership position. So Trump still has a great sway and control of the Republican Party. And, and I think what's happening is there is a certain angst in America among white working-class people, and Trump is able to tap into that better than almost anybody else has. He, un- he understands it, feels with it, and even though it's based on lies and even though his policies don't really help these people, there are enough people that like his kind of screw-you attitude and giving the finger to the establishment. Uh, it's beyond me, but it's still a very viable and still frightening uh, events that people do support him in, in spite of everything he says and does. And in, the, in his second term, it becomes even more frightening. And you've got to sit there and say, oh, my God, how do we get rid of this guy? Yeah, well, it's clear that the Republican Party is a regime. And I, uh, and to even further this point, if you look at the definition of regime, it's a government, especially an authoritarian one. And it's very clear that you either are on the Republican bus or you're not on the Republican bus. And that's what they're doing to Liz Cheney. You either, you know, march with them or they're going to find a way to get rid of you. And, sorry. I'm so sorry. Well, they, they, they've, they've marginalized Mitt Romney. They've marginalized Liz Cheney. And there was a an election in Texas where, uh, for one of the congressmen who had died of COVID, a Republican. And there were two, there were like 10 people, eight to 10 people in the election. And two of them, who were big Trump supporters, got 65% of the vote. There was one Republican who was a serviceman, small business owner, kind of the prototypical person that you'd expect to do well. And he was anti-Trump, and he got 3% of the vote. And I I think that says it all, that uh, the grassroots really does support this guy. Yeah, and it's it's scary. (laughs) Um, for sure. Um, the, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. And, you know, to add back to the Republican Party, um, I'm in District 11, so you mentioned earlier you're more east of here. I assume your rep is um, uh, Lucy McBath over in your area, right? Yeah, Lucy McBath, yes. Yeah, so a little bit over here, too. I'm I'm literally across the street from District 6, which is your... Um, district over there. I have District 11, which is Barry Loudermilk. And then further to the west of us, we have lovely Marjorie Taylor Greene at 14. <laughs> and, um, but basically, if you put Barry Loudermilk and Marjorie Taylor Greene together, they're basically the same. It's just that Marjorie can't shut her mouth. And um, one of the ideas, and, and you, you've done it, and I have another author that I've done an, uh, an episode with, and we're going to do another episode this Saturday with a gentleman that's running against Barry Loudermilk. And it's an idea that I've um, done before, and um, it, it's coming up again because we're going to have another election next year. 
because uh, those house seats are only every two years. Um, but uh, there's a tool out there, I'm not sure if you've heard of it, it's called ResistBot. And it's a you know, technology tool, uh, you know, nonprofit that a lot of folks uh, help out with to help you contact your elected officials. Uh, have you heard of it by chance? No, no, I haven't. Okay, so you can choose to use, you can text, you can use Facebook Messenger, there's a whole host of tools that they have, and uh, they make it easier for you to get in contact with your elected officials. But one key thing that they do is at the end you can write your letter, you can hit send, but they ask you a question, they say, do you want us to tweet a copy of the letter you just sent to your elected officials? Which makes it a, you know, public record on Twitter. And if you do, they create the tweet, they put an image out there of the letter you just sent, and they tag your elected officials. And it makes it very easy then to do a quick search and see all the letters that are being sent to your elected officials. And the idea that I've done before, and I'm going to present it to authors like yourself, um, you know, the author that I'm going to, um, you know, talk with on Saturday and, and you know, the, uh, uh, the guys that are running against him is to um, catalog and compile these letters that go to these elected officials that are just being silent. Uh, they were silent when Trump was doing everything that he was doing. They just shrugged, you know, and, and, and didn't do a thing about it. Um, but there were endless letters that were inundating their office that they were just basically shredding and putting in file 13 from their constituents that allegedly they were so, you know, rushing and asking for their vote, you know, every election cycle, but yet they just ignore and claim that they're allegedly doing their job. I think that is a very powerful book to compile and create a you know, record and a story to tell there. I'm just curious what your thoughts are now that you've written, you know, numerous books there, what you think about a project like that. You know, I think that's a very good idea. The question that I would have is how, how impactful will that be? And one of the things that in, in looking at the elections, is that, you know, most people, most of the congressional districts are either very solidly Republican or very solidly Democrat. And Marjorie Greene, for example, got 85% of the vote in her district. And I'm sure that Barry Laddermilk got probably 55 or 60% of the vote. And so I don't, I think that what, the Democrats got to do, and I think Biden's doing it now, and I think it's exactly what he needs to do, is that you just got to keep hammering away of what he's doing for the people in terms of spending, in terms of getting rid of the pandemic, in terms of the economy, in terms of building the infrastructure. And I don't know whether or not, even if, even if people saw social media and tweets that said, that there's a problem with what the Republicans are saying, that that would affect people. I think people are, it, 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 it amazes me that there was no red line that Trump could cross. And even the January 6th insurrection, I would have thought, well, that would have been the red line 
when people and voters still need to st- would say, hey, we're not going to support Trump because he, he wants to overthrow democracy. And uh, if anything, that's even strengthened uh, Trump's case because Trump said that this is based on the premise that the election was fair. And he said the election was a big lie. And 70% of the Republicans believe that there were, that it was a fraudulent uh, result. And so if somebody b- believes that it's a fraudulent result, how are you going to convince them that, that Trump is wrong, no matter what you say? That, that, that's what I find amazing, is that people still support the man regardless of what he does or says. True. And um, the decision this week, I think, uh, you know, definitely is a nail in its coffin uh, for, uh, for him to not be re-added to Facebook. Um, and then, you know, he continues to not be allowed uh, back on Twitter. Um, because, and I've mentioned this in previous episodes as well, you had reporters that would literally chomping at the bit, staring at their screen, waiting on him to tweet something new and ridiculous. You don't have that right now, thankfully. Um, and it would have been that way if he were to have been allowed back on Facebook or a mainstream social media platform. So, I'm only laughing because the there was an analysis that the Washington Post did which showed that during Biden's first 100 days, he made 67 false and misleading statements. And you compared that to Trump. Trump made 511. Tr- Trump made um, eight times as many false and misleading statements. And over his entire four years, he made over 30,000 false and misleading statements. And still that, didn't, that d- doesn't affect uh, the base of the Republican Party. Which is, uh, which again is incredible. Yeah, it, it's uh, every little bit helps, though. <laughs> I mean, there, there's even tools that are out there. I don't know if you've seen the website that uh, um, how to enable um, uh, child lock to uh, disable Fox News at your parents' home. <laughs> Um, yeah. You know, the, 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 these are the tools, but, they, you know, Fox News with the uh, the lawsuits that they were getting uh, after the um, the election companies were suing them, um, they've even toned their stuff down uh, because they were, you know, worried about losing money over uh, all the uh, the trash that they were spewing out. So it's... Uh, and and, and, and it's, it's still amazing that they are, they continue... They, they would not cover. See, see, this is part of the media. Fox News, Joe Biden had a speech today in, where was it, in, in, Pennsylvania, in Louisiana. That's right. Uh, and it was about his new program. Fox News wouldn't even cover it. No. So to a certain extent, all the conservatives that, that just watch Fox News would not even hear anything about it. And I'm thank. God that Facebook, well, that the panel that oversees that would not uh, allow Trump to get back on Facebook, because I think that would have been horrendous. And uh, the more that he's kept off, the the better off we are. Yeah. 
Well, all that was blown out of the water back in the 80s. The, um, the Reagan administration blew the um, Fairness Doctrine out of the water back in the 80s. Um, you know, back when you had a normal newscast, and if there was something political or controversial, you had to air both sides of the story. They don't do that anymore. That, that's not been done since the 80s. So, yeah. You know, and what's interesting is that I've got a number of friends who are very conservative, and I'll send them articles from CNN, from ABC, and they'll send me articles from The Beast and from Bumblebee and from other sites that I've never even heard of and stories that I've never even heard of. And it's almost like there are two different versions of reality that are going on now. There And despite what they say, you know, you can pick your own opinion. You just can't pick which facts you use to support it. But people are looking at the same situation and coming to very different conclusions based upon the alternate worlds that they live in. For sure. And that's uh, it, in, in, the, in the corporate world, it's a lot of similar stuff that we talk about with unconscious bias. And, uh, you know, when, when situations, they don't affect you, 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 you don't, you just shrug and you're like, well, you, you don't care about them until, as you mentioned with your, your character in the book there, until your, um, your cleaning lady, you know, gets locked up or something like that. Oh, well, then it suddenly affects you. So it's, uh, it, it certainly um, is something to think about, for sure. The, the, the other thing is that you also get into this moral dilemma that there's one character in the book who's an inspector general for the Justice Department, and people start coming to him and saying, hey, there's all this illegal stuff going on that's benefiting Trump supporters, and we want you to do something. And as the inspector general, that's his job, and he says, you know, but if I do it, then I'm going to be fired. And Trump fired five or six inspector generals during his term, and so this guy figures, well, if I do my job, and investigate some of uh, Trump's associates, A, nothing's going to happen, and B, I'll get fired from my job. So, therefore, why should I do it? But if I don't do it, then, you know, can I live with myself? And this is kind of the moral dilemma that people are, w would have been faced with in a Trump second term of do I do something which will have no impact and then lose my livelihood, or do I do something and risk uh, not having a job. And those are the kinds of tough decisions that in the abstract, you know, everybody is gung-ho for morality and gung-ho doing the right thing. But if it costs you your job and costs you your livelihood, are you really going to do it? Yeah. Um, do, do you happen to uh, watch Rachel Maddow very often? Yeah, I, I do watch her sometimes, yes. Yeah, if you might remember, she um, every time Trump fired somebody, she just started added them to the tote board, and there was at some point she had, they had to pan out so far that she was just like an inch in the corner of the screen. There were so many people that either fired or just left because of the um, the disaster, the dumpster fire. So, yeah. And, but then Trump had the the big megaphone, which was Twitter, in order to say. This guy is not good. Uh, he, he was overwhelmed, like General Kelly, with his, who was his chief of staff. He said, General Kelly uh, was overwhelmed by the position. 
And one of the things that I had a lot of fun with in the book was that in order to get the voice of Trump, I used Twitter. And so I would uh, get a tweet, and then that would be Trump. And if, if Trump declared a state of national emergency, then he would do it via tweet, which is what he would do. And one of my editors looked at some of the tweets and said, wait a minute, Tom, there are misspellings in them. You're bolding stuff. It's not grammatical. And I said, exactly. Therefore, mm -hmm. I have copied Trump's uh, tweets. Yeah. And um, I forget the, the recent episode that I did, and, and you wonder sometimes whether he does some of this on purpose. Um, maybe. Um, but if you might remember, there was an interview of Michael Cohen that one time, and Michael Cohen confirmed Trump has no sense of humor. <laughs> it's, it's literally all him. And everything is what's going to make him more money, what, what's, it, what's in it for him, and be damned everything else. And that was true over and over still to this day. And it, 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 it's, it's totally true. But to one of the points that we made throughout this podcast is that his, his people don't believe it. They, they accept uh, what he says. And the big lie, and there was a really nice uh, episode where they had a Republican spokesperson being interviewed by uh, a CNN through either CNN or one of the major networks saying, do you think that uh, Joe Biden was legitimately elected? And the, the spokesperson could not use the word legitimate. He said, no, I, th I think the problem is that we had a faulty election. He said, well, but regardless of what you think is faulty election, do you think that Joe Biden was legitimately elected? And after eight tries, the Republican spokesperson couldn't use the word legitimacy. I mean, it, 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 it was amazing to watch. And, and it almost seemed like an episode, if you had seen it on Saturday Night Live, you would have said, that's absurd. But it wasn't on Saturday Night Live, it was an interview. Oh, yeah. yeah Republicans, are, I mean, like Barry Loudermilk, he hasn't done a town hall in years. He, he is so scared to be confronted, to be asked the tough questions. He, he's so far in hiding at this point, it's ridiculous. Well, and, and the, only, the only good news is because Trump is so far out there, the two Georgia senator seats would have gone Republican if, if Trump had, instead of focusing on getting uh, uh, Purdue and uh, Leffler reelected, he was more concerned about pushing the big lie and the fact that it was a, a fraudulent election than getting uh, two Republicans elected. So to a certain extent, I'm saying, hey, thank God he is as off base as he is otherwise. He potentially could have won the election, and it would have been a Republican Senate, and that would have been um, very scary. Definitely, for sure. Any other uh, parting words or comments from the book or anything else? Um, the other thing, uh, just to, um, uh, the other note that came out this week, and just to get it in, on the podcast since we're talking about Barry Loudermilk, uh, years ago when Barry Loudermilk was trying to um, get elected, um, uh, Josh Duggar, does that name sound familiar to you? Sure. Yeah, he so, was 19 and counting or something? 
Yeah. So um, uh, as another side gig, part of the whole reality thing they were doing at the time, he was going around with Republicans and uh, helping them get elected. And there was an event up in Woodstock, Georgia, that he helped uh, Barry Loudermilk uh, get out the vote. And this event, which I'm amazed to this day, has not been removed from Barry Loudermilk's campaign Facebook page, has the Dugers and Barry Loudermilk campaigning together. Well, fast forward to this week, uh, Josh Duger has been let out on bail because he is still in trouble for child pornography. Um, another reason that Barry Loudermilk is in hiding and uh, not wanting to do town halls, I'm certain. But even if you look at Matt Gates and you look at Marjorie Taylor Greene, both of whom have extreme views and... Uh, there are accusations against Matt Gates, and still the Republican Party has not sanctioned either one of them. No. And, you know, I think uh, when you look at what uh, Liz Cheney had said, you know, you need to remember, you need to figure out where, where, where you stood on these issues and where your conscience is when these issues were raised. And the Republican Party has clearly made a... St a stance, and that's why it's it's critically important that uh, as I'm thinking about the election, and people say, "Well, you know, like, hey, 155 million people vote. Does my vote count?" And given 155, 105,000 votes separated uh, Trump from Biden at the end in terms of getting elected, I'm thinking, yeah, every vote counts, and the lesson of the book and kind of, you know, final learning is that once a president gets elected, uh, you, you, for all intents and purposes, you're not going to get rid of him. And he's, he's not going to be assassinated, uh, most likely. He's not going to be uh, removed by the legislature. The courts are not going to remove him. So... America needs to be really wise on its choices, and uh, thank God that they made the choice that they did in 2020. Certainly agreed. Well, thanks, Tom, for joining. Was there anything else you want to get added on this episode? No, no, I, I enjoyed it, Robert. And my book, uh, Trump's Second Term: What If President Donald J. Trump Had Won Re-Election in 2020, is available on Amazon in either soft paper or ebook. Yeah, thanks for joining, and uh, we'll get this uh, published out. Thanks for having have a good week there. It's beautiful out, finally, after that storm came through. Uh, thank good. It's, uh, uh, it's, always, it's always beautiful in Georgia. And, and uh, I'm, coming down from New York, uh, I always used to say that uh, northern by birth, southern by the grace of God. <laughs> All right, glad to have you. Have a good rest of the week. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, Robert. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye.